0: We are in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We are studying the life of David. David has just slain Goliath. Uh, He's on top of the world. People are acclaiming him, and we're going to study a chapter that's going to show us how we walk with God even when things don't go exactly as we would expect. How do we live a life as a godly person when, when the elements turn against us? When the world, all of a sudden, those people in authority no longer respect us. Uh, And that's what we're going to see here uh, in this particular chapter. Here's a season that you're going to see David as he's being acclaimed by the people that Saul has determined in his heart through jealousy, through an evil spirit, that he will destroy David. Uh, and he has become increasingly jealous of David, and so you're going to see the juxtaposition of these two forces: the evil surrounding Saul, the jealousy, the envy surrounding Saul, interposing itself against God's man, David. And so there's a lot of lessons for us to to look here and see how we walk as godly men uh, in difficult times. So, First Samuel chapter 18. Let's begin reading the first 17 verses here. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did so successfully. That Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Not good. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. I like the way the Bible writes it. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. I'm going to stop right there as we... We uh, begin to uh, unpack this. And so you see here, God elevating David in every way, everything that David is giving, uh, every assignment that he's given. Because he's a godly man, because he walks with God, uh, God is with him and blessing him. Um, and and uh, he, he has unbelievable success because he has submitted himself to God. Uh, I can't emphasize this enough to us, that even though you may be talented, and even though you may be gifted, unless you are bowing yourself in submission to God, you will not be fully blessed. Yes, you may have some success in your life, uh, and yet there will be more to go. And this is what God, try, God tries to teach us here in this lesson. And so you see how God is doing that with, with David. And one of the very early things here that, that uh, strikes me is the fact that God has put Jonathan, Saul's son, and effectively the heir to Saul as king, put Jonathan and David together. Uh, and Jonathan is a special man. Jonathan is a man who, irrespective of how his father acts, Jonathan Jonathan is God's man. Jonathan sees the fact that that David is anointed. David is anointed, and so as a result of that, he gives and makes a covenant of friendship with David. Uh, So he treated David as if they were one. They, They are effectively united in friendship. And this strikes me as a special lesson for us today, how God wants to give us godly friends. You need godly men in your life. You need to have somebody who prays for you, somebody that cares for you, somebody who you can speak to, somebody who thinks so highly of you that they will speak to you when maybe your life is not in accord with God's will. You need to have that kind of friend. Uh, And you have to ask God to surround you with those kind of people. Uh, And if you have that kind of friend in your life, you are tremendously blessed right now. Uh, And and look at how uh, God talks about this in this passage, about how Jonathan does this. It says, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic. And what does that mean? It means he's recognizing that this man will be king. Now, nobody told him this man is going to be king. All right. This has not become generally known. This is a prophecy and an anointing that Samuel did, and yet you see through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, that Jonathan recognizes he's in the presence of an anointed man. And so here's Jonathan, even though he himself, by the world's standards, would become the next king, He's the son of Saul. He would become the heir to that royal position. Yet he himself, bowing in position, bowing in submission to God, gives David his robe and his tunic. That's the sign of I'm recognizing who you are. I'm recognizing that God has anointed you. And, and not only is it, is, does this speak of the fact that he's recognizing that God has anointed him, it also tells you that he gives him his sword, his bow, and his belt, meaning, I've got your back. I've got your back. When you go to battle, I will be there. I will be bound with you. I will help to protect you. You should know that I am in your camp. And this was a a tremendous gift that God gave uh, David And David grew to love Jonathan. He loved him so much that when Jonathan died, David referred to him as his brother. His brother. And so this is a lesson that you see as God puts David into the royal palace, as things are going to become dark, as Saul is going to attempt to kill David, you're going to see God elevating and protecting David. And one of the ways that that God does that one of the ways that God does that is that God puts godly people around him. Um, And so what you see here uh, is the juxtaposition of these two men, both having at one time been appointed by God, but one falling out of favor with God, that's Saul, and one walking in favor with God, David. And so there's so many things to be learned here. And so David is now residing in the palace. Saul does not let him go back to his family. He wants him there in the palace. And this passage here, you're going to see for the next five or six years, this is referred to theologically as the Gibeah years. Uh, And what you're going to see here is that David is going to have uh, increasing successes militarily. But as he does that, the anger and the vitriol and the envy... And the jealousy of Saul will grow hotter and hotter. Uh, And we're going to see that in this passage as we continue to read this. And so as they return from the battle, the women line the streets. uh, And they're praising the army. Um, And you would think that being told that you have killed thousands, that you would be happy to hear that as a military person. Uh, David has killed his ten thousands, Saul has killed his thousands. Well, instead of, instead of bowing in submission to God and recognizing that God has in some way anointed this man, you see what happens when you've lost your footing in terms of your relationship with God. You're no longer a humble, submissive person. Now it's all about you, me, I, I, I. How dare, that? How dare they uh, elevate that man? How dare they say that that man has killed 10,000 when they're only saying I killed thousands? Now, it's laughable in some ways when you think about it that a guy would lose his mind over, over a mindless chant by a crowd of people. But it shows you that he remembered the prophecy of Samuel who said that God has taken the kingdom away from you. Right? He remembered that prophecy. It lingered. And so there it is in the back of his mind, even as he sees the events unfold, he said even as he sees this unfold, that he remembers, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remembered that the kingdom is being taken away from me. I'll bet this guy, this interloper, is the guy who God is putting in place of my kingdom. Uh, and so he, his anger and envy and jealousy rises up. Uh, and it says in verse 8, Saul was very angry. Uh, And it says, from that time on, in verse 9, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. What a sad commentary, isn't that? That you live your life under a spirit of jealousy and envy. And I would say to you that there are many men who call themselves Christians who live under a spirit of jealousy and envy. All right? There are many of us that live that way. We may not acknowledge it to anybody else, but in your heart of hearts, you have to respond to God about this. Do you have an ongoing spirit of jealousy or envy? Is there something in the world that you are jealous about? Is there some aspect of your life or somebody that you know that you have jealousy about? Is there some aspect of envy that has creeped into your life? Because I want to tell you something, that is poison. That is poison. That will destroy you. You cannot have that uh, effectively evolving in your spirit and think that you are walking as God wants you to walk. You need to ask God to, to take this away from you. You need to bow in repentance. Lord, forgive me. Don't let this spirit of jealousy or envy incorporate itself in my life. You are doomed. It's like a metastatic cancer. It will grow and grow and grow until it eventually consumes you. Jealousy and envy are absolutely evil. Uh, it's from Satan. It's a satanic spirit. And, and Satan knows our weaknesses. He knows how we are, how our human flesh is. How we look at other people and we become, we become resentful of other people's successes. You know that. You look at people that you, you were raised with, Or maybe in your social circle, and you'll see somebody have some kind of meteoric success, and do you say, oh, that's great news. I'm so happy for you. Maybe you say that with your lips, but on your heart, you're going, you lucky son of a gun. You're so lucky. I can't believe you're this lucky. You're no better than I am. You know there's a lot of us that do this. All right? It's the natural human condition. God is giving us these lessons because He knows your human condition. You see, the point is not that coming into these issues is necessarily evil of itself, but the dwelling and the inculcating and the nurturing is where the evil takes place. Certainly, we all suffer momentary passions of envy. That happens. Oh, Oh, wow, look, I wish I, oh, oh. And then what God wants you to say is, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Don't let me fall into this spirit. Don't let me continue to dwell in that spirit of jealousy and envy because it becomes a poison. And you see it here uh, in every possible way. And so David is being praised. David's being praised. And you see in this comparison between David and Uh, and Saul side by side in the royal court. Side by side for a period of years, they will be together. Both men appointed for leadership. Both men anointed by the Spirit. And yet with David, you see the steady growth with the grace of God, submitting and walking in God. And with Saul, there was a continual spirit of compromise, oppression and perversion he didn't grow he stopped growing he didn't rely on God he stopped relying on God he didn't submit to God he refused to submit to God and so you see how one being protected and uplifted by God walking in the grace of, of God himself uh, how, how God is protecting him and lifting him up and how the other one will will stumble and eventually be slain Uh, And so the test is the same for us today. And here's one of the key lessons in this uh, section of Scripture. Do we respond to praise in the same way we respond to criticism? I can speak for myself. The answer is not so good. (laughs) Not so good, okay? I'm really good... I find that I'm really good and godly when you tell me how good I am. <laughs> I, I, I find that I'm very good at that. Oh, you're, you're doing a great job. You're good. You know. That's, and I feel good about that. And I find that I respond in a good way. But then all of a sudden, if you start making some critical comments about me, I don't respond as well. Okay? I don't respond as well. I'm, I'm not the same godly guy. All of a sudden, a lot of the Jersey aspect comes back <laughs> out of me. You know? The Jersey aspect comes back, which I thought that I had buried that nice and deep, but I find that, no, I didn't bury it nice and deep. And folks, this isn't just about me. It's about you. I'm just the guy up here with the microphone. What does it mean? It means that these elements in our flesh, are elements in our flesh, uh, that that are there that God has surrounded us with His Spirit and allowed us to put them aside have a tendency in difficult times to rear their ugly head. Okay. Rear their ugly head. And so here's the test. Do you respond the same? Because you see how David is. Yes, David is great. Yes, he's the best. Yes, he's a great soldier. And then all of a sudden, Saul wants to destroy him. Saul hates him. All right? And do you see a guy here blaming God? Do you see a guy here blaming God? You don't see that. All right? And what a lesson that is for us. And so what it means here for you is this. God wants us to be consistent. God wants us to be the same. God wants us to respond to praise the same way we would respond to criticism. Even though we may have a momentary dissipation in that area, he wants us to be that way. What does it mean? It means when we're praised, don't ever get so high. All right? Oh, yeah. Listen to them. I have killed 10,000. You didn't kill anybody. You understand? You didn't kill anybody. If the grace of God were not there with you, lifting you up, protecting you, you would have nothing. And let me tell you something. I learned these lessons in my life the hard way. I've got scar tissue to prove it. Okay? And we could all tell these lessons. There was a time in my life when, when, when I had, as clients, both General Motors and Ford Motor Company. All right? That was unheard of right? in, my, in my boutique firm. And here I was uh, trying the most complex cases, the most complex cases. Uh, and and uh, some of the cases would go 18 weeks. I would try cases that would start in April, go every single day of the week until August. How do you like that? And for a period of three years, I tried three major cases that all went weeks. One of them was the General Motors case. Another one was for Stroh's Brewery in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Another one was in, in Brockway Glass. And I was, at the, you know, I was at the top of my game as a lawyer. Clients were coming in. I was getting cases that, that several hundred member law firms couldn't get. General Motors came out to New Jersey to interview a, the largest law firm in New Jersey and hired me instead. Do I have to finish the O? (laughs) Now I want you to know something. I'm a Christian. I'm going to church. I'm playing the organ in church for 40 years. This is a Christian message I'm giving you. All right? Oh. And so here it is, these three major cases. In fact, one of the cases uh, in Pennsylvania the judge's law clerk, which was a civil service position after about an eight- or nine-day trial, halfway through the trial, a guy comes out and says to me, let me ask you a question. I'm 42. Let me ask you a question. Is your father still alive? (laughs) Yeah, my my father is still alive. Oh, he must be very proud of you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is going good. This is going good. Good. This is going good. Not so good. In a period of 18 months, I lost all three cases. And they were cases that by anybody's analysis in the field of law, based on what I had done, I should have won. But in all three cases, there were extraneous events. One was a judge that was biased against General Motors. He was a former Internal Revenue Service General Counsel. He detested General Motors. Another case, the judge in in the uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania case was running for re-election. You think, by the way, you think you're going to get a fair shake from a guy running for re-election when you're seeking to cut millions of dollars from taxes for the Stroh's Brewery when you're going to be subject to being elected by the people? Not so easy. All right, the same with Brockway Glass. And guess what? Not only did I lose... The taxes were raised. The taxes were raised. And here's, here's insult to injury. And it was reported on the radio. How you doing, John? How you doing? Feeling good? Feeling pretty good, huh? You understand? It was God giving a message to me. Listen, big guy. Don't think it's your, your smart or your intellect or your giftedness. Everything that you have is from me. And as easy as I can give it to you, I can take it away from you. You understand? As easy as I can give it to you, I can take it away from you. Yes, you're trying to live a life in accord with my will, but you still suffer from this momentary issues of arrogance. You understand? And, and you lift, you have a tendency, we have a tendency to lift ourselves up and let me tell you, I prayed. Oh, man, did I pray. God, don't let this happen to me. One judge said to me during the period, you know, Garipoli, he says, you know what the word is about you on the street? The word is that if you want your taxes raised, people should hire you. <laughs> there it is. You see the heart of people. That was a judge saying that to me. Why? Because he had made a number of comments to me over the years about the amount of money that I had been making, the kind of cases that I have. And you see envy and jealousy coming and raising its head. And yet God wanted to deliver a message to me. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Don't go around thinking that you're that 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 it's because of your intellect or your gifts That you are in a position where you are, God had given you those things. God has given you that. Wherever you are, whatever you have, God has given it to you. And I prayed, Lord, please don't do this. All these people that I'm hiring, these lives that I have in my control, Lord, don't let them be punished. When, because in the business that I was in at the very highest levels of trial litigation, you're only as good as your last win. Do you understand? Nobody's going to come and hire you if all of a sudden you're a loser. They only come as long as you're putting wins up on the board. It's as simple as that. That's how corporate life is. And I prayed. And God answered that prayer because I took all three cases to the Supreme Court and I won all three cases on reversal. That was God. That was God. And I remember when I argued the case for Stroh's Brewery at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, I shut myself into my office for one solid month. I didn't answer the phone. I took every possible precedent of law and memorized it. I had every possible answer. I reviewed six feet of transcripts, incorporating every, I had a. this was it. This was big, I had to step forward and there I am in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And the seven justices of the Supreme Court, I put my book down with my notes and I opened my mouth uh, to make my argument about how this was a travesty of law and how it needed to be reversed. And 35 seconds into the presentation, the Chief Justice of the Court says to me, Mr. Garippa, we understand your case. We don't need to hear you put anything else on the record is there anything else you really need to add? (laughs) Maybe the old John would have said, yeah, there's some things that I need to add. But I recognized that the hand of God was in this. And I said, no, Mr. Justice, there's nothing else. And the other lawyer got up, and they threw everything at him but the kitchen sink. And the case was reversed. Um, and it made the front pages of the, of the papers. Uh, and it was because God, in his mercy, intervened in my life. God had extended mercy because he was teaching me a lesson. Don't be lifted up in times of praise don't go thinking you're as great as, as your press releases are. Be, be grounded in God, and you see this tremendous lesson. I'm telling you a story that stayed with me forever. This is one of the issues, really, where God spoke directly to me. Now, this wasn't easy. I don't want you to think it was easy, because during that period of 18 months, I had a heart attack. How's that? 42 years old. You don't think the pressure? was overwhelming in my life as I saw this all coming together. I had a heart attack. But God was using all this to eventually, eventually redirect my life to where I am today. All right? And I'm not sure I would be today where I am without the intervention of God because at that point in my life, I was flying all over the country to every different state, all these corporations, uh, and... And it was very flattering. It was very uplifting that that people would want to hire me, these largest corporations, and yet God said to me, slow down, bud. Slow down. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about me. And so you see this here. God is testing you in times of praise and yet in times of criticism to understand where you stand. And I, I find this honestly, to be one of the great lessons in in all of our lives, and that's this, the things, the real lessons you learn in life, you learn with your losses. Can I get an amen on that? All right, you understand? The real lessons you make and remember in your life are not the victories, because here's the victories. Yeah, give me a high five. Oh, yeah, give me a high five. It's when you lose, when the rug is pulled out from under you, when all of a sudden you're not respected, when all of a sudden you see the envy of people come out against you and you see the loss and it's in the loss when you suddenly look in the mirror, introspectively look within your heart and God says to you, you are nothing. You are nothing without me. Man, if you don't get anything else I say today, this is something that I hope you will remember. You are nothing without God. All right? I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how talented you are. Unless God decides to lift you up and bless you, you're going nowhere. And you see that here in this lesson. And then you see what happens when a man turns away from God, turns away from the anointing, turns away from submission, and now raises himself up, worries about himself and not about what God has in mind for him. And you see that right there in verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. Now, let me theologically make this statement so that it's clear. God doesn't send evil spirits. All right? I understand the translation says that. What it means is that the hedge of protection that God had put upon Saul, the hedge of protection, uh, God allowed a hole in the hedge. Why? Because he saw Saul had an inclination to go down that road. And in, in many ways, this is similar to the issue of hardening of heart. God sees when you, when you come away. God sees when you desire, I'm not going to be close with you, God. I'm going to repudiate these things. I'm not interested in your walk. I'm not interested in submission. And so God says, after a while, that's what you want? That's what you want? You got it, buddy. You got it. And so what you see here is this evil spirit now is encamped around Saul. Saul. And and they call it an evil spirit. Uh, It's certainly not a spirit from God. It may have been an overwhelming sense of depression, a sense of melancholy, a reflection of what what should have happened, what could have happened, where I was, and how everything is devolving away. All, All of these issues. And yet, whatever it is, that spirit encamped itself around Saul. And he would not have peace. Lesson number two. You want peace in your life? Stay close to the cross. Stay close to the cross. I'm not saying you're going to have a magic life, that you're not going to have trouble. Yes, you're going to have trouble. Yes, things are going to come your way. Yes, you're going to have losses. Yes, you're going to have up days and down days. But when you remain close with God, you will have a spirit of contentment. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen people that hardly had two cents together. Really, I looked at my own mother and father who, who lived the, most, uh, the lowest possible economic life you could imagine, right? Never traveling any place. Uh, I told you that my parents effectively lived on the first floor uh, of a house that was a one-family and they converted it into a two-family. They slept their entire married life in a dining room. My sister had the one-bedroom in the house and I slept in the kitchen. Yet these people were unbelievably content. You understand you could have millions upon millions of dollars and not have a spirit of contentment. Lesson number two. You want to be content? You want to be happy? Don't worry about the money. God gives contentment. You will have a a life of contentment irrespective, irrespective of your finances. God will deliver that to you. And so you see here the opposite of that. Here he is, the king. He's the king. You can't get any higher. And yet what? The evil spirit is around him. Depression surrounds him. The anger, the jealousy surrounds him. He's moved away from God. That's right. He moved away from God, and now he's focusing on on how to destroy another man. And you see what happens. What What a lesson this is for us. Uh, and you see this forcefully playing out, and so the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house and by the way uh, i 've done enough research on that to indicate that is not he 's not prophesying uh, from God effectively he 's under an evil spirit and and hes and he 's saying evil musings he 's not within himself he 's losing his mind he 's losing control of himself. And you see this here in this whole passage. You see it here in this passage. Uh, And and as we speak about this, you see him saying he had a spear. David was playing the harp, as he usually did. David is trying to placate Saul. They brought David into the royal palace so that David's, David's musicianship would uplift Saul, would uplift him. Uh, and give him peace. And so David is playing playing uh, this, the harp. And Saul has a spear in his hand. Uh, and what happens next? Saul hurls it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. How do you like that? How do you like that? Now... I want you to think about the protective hand of God. Because here is this massive man, and we know from other, other uh, historians that Saul was about six foot seven or six foot eight. He was the tallest man in, in all of Israel. Powerful man. So here he has a sword, and in his mind, the evil spirit gets to him, and he goes, I'll pin him to the wall. And by the way, what do you think he was looking for a flesh shot? You think he was looking for a lot, just going to scare him? Let me, put the, let me put some fear in this boy. Now he was trying to kill him, and he hurls this spear at David. and God protects him. What do you, you think what it had to take to, to be in a close quarter, close quarters, and God protects David so that he's not killed by the spear? And by the way, not once but twice, twice. So you understand how, how serious this is, and yet you see God protecting David in every possible way. Uh, and, and so it's a, an incredible story. But David eluded him twice. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. Now, here's the point I want to tell you something. What do you think would have happened if Saul repented? What do you think would have happened if Saul said, Lord, forgive me? I'm sorry. I know I've, I've debased you. I have not submitted to you. Lord, forgive me. Do you think God would have forgiven Saul? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no record that when somebody has ever comes to God and bows in submission and asks God to forgive them that he would have been forgiven. It doesn't mean that he would have stayed as king. I don't think that was the case. I think God had moved on from that. But he would have forgiven him. He would have allowed him to have a life of peace. Not a lot of tort, not a life of torture, not to be surrounded by evil spirits, but that wasn't the case. Instead, Saul goes deeper. He goes deeper as he's surrounded by evil. Um, And so you see this, uh, that he recognizes that his fear was because God had protected David. Verse 13: So he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaign. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. What does that mean? He was a godly man who respected the people. He led with respect. He led with humility. He led with the spirit of God. He didn't lift himself up and go, I'm the king's top man. I'm a military genius. All right? He didn't do that. Instead, he bows in submission to God, and God lifts him up. And I'm also convinced that Saul sent him out of the palace because Saul was secretly hoping he'd be killed. Got it? Let me get this guy out of the palace. Let me put him out there in the front lines. Let's get him out there so he can see some uh, action. And maybe he'll be killed. And I don't have to worry about him any longer. And you see that here. I mean, absolutely, you see this, this absolutely uh, opening up in front of you. And yet you see David being consistent. David being consistent. What an example to us that even then when you get these positions, these appointments, you think David really wanted to go out? I'm not sure he did. I like playing the harp. The harp is good. I like music. It's safer in here. You understand? It's safer in here. I'm making that up. But, but, the, but the point I'm making is this. David took the assignments. David took the assignments. If this is what you want, if this is what you're giving me, David, as a man of God, accepts the assignments given to him. Lesson number three. As men of God, when, when, when our assignments come to us, when people ask us to do things, we find a way to advance the kingdom of God. Amen? We find a way. It's not about our own self. It's not about our, our own issues. We find a way to do the things that God wants us to do, uh, even if it may be an inconvenience. And I know so many of you are involved in so many good things in, in this group here whether it's at the prison or with military. So many of you are doing so many things that are with the poor and the, and the homeless. Uh, God is really being honored by your conduct. And the point of it is we bow in submission to God. Even if it may seem like it's difficult personally from doing it, even if it's inconvenient for me, I'll do it. David did it, and God honored him. And God honored him. God lifted him up, and he had success Uh, and, And so Saul saw how successful he was, and he was afraid of him. Yet all of Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. The people will ultimately recognize you for what you are. You don't have to worry, by the way. You don't have to worry, oh, I hope people will acknowledge me. I hope I get the praise I am due. You don't need the praise of men. You need the praise of God. And if you live your life, listen to this, if you live your life seeking the appraise of men, you will be doomed to disappointment and failure. At the end of the day, they will abandon you. All right? You're not. We don't live for the praise of men. We live for the praise of God, and that's the example here with David. And so Saul said to David at the end of this campaign, verse 17, here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. How's that? So here it is. There you see the evil. You see the spirit of Satan, how Satan goes. I'm going to give you my oldest daughter, Merab. I'm going to give her to you. Uh, and and the only thing I want from you is that you will fight for me. Meanwhile, while he says this on his lips, his heart says, and I hope you die, and I hope you die. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? Stop. Look at the humility of this man. Look at the humility. Even though, even though he knew the king had hurled a spear at him twice. Even though I'm sure he recognized that he was being sent out to fight the Philistines because Saul had an evil spirit and, and wanted to see him uh, die. When, when given this putative honor uh, to, to marry the daughter, David bows in submission, saying, Who am I? I'm not anybody special. I'm just a simple guy. I was a shepherd. Is that how we act? Do we act that way? Who am I? Or is it, why not me? Why not me? Why shouldn't I have that honor? I'm deserving of that honor. I'm deserving of that position. Instead, God wants us to lower ourselves and be humble and submissive as he enters our lives. So when the time came, verse 19, for Merib, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given... In marriage to Adriel of Mahola how about that you think that's a nice smack in the face how do you like that you publicly promised your daughter to me because of what I've done for the kingdom and now you publicly embarrass me by giving your daughter to another man how would we react to slights like that would we blame God oh God How could you do this to me? I'm here, you know I love you, I've served you. How could you do this to me? Recognizing that in fact, evil comes on the just and the unjust, there's a lesson here. You understand? Evil comes on the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Even though things go wrong in your life, don't think that it's because of God. Sometimes it's because of evil that is so pervasive in this world that you're stuck swimming around in it. And when you see that here, you look at how David responds. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't go to war with God. He's not angry with God. He is consistent in his walk. He is consistent in his walk. Whether it's a day of praise or a day of criticism. Whether it's a day of elevation or a day of defamation. He is the same. Because he relies on God. Because he's serving God. Because he's walking with God. This is another hard lesson. This is another hard lesson because everybody in this room has at some point in their lives faced some act of what I will call treachery. All right? some fact of injustice, Uh, all of us. There's not a person here that hasn't faced this in their life. And the question for for you is, how does God want you to act when you go through that? I would say this, whatever it is, don't blame God. Don't be angry at God because you live in an evil world. Put yourself right with God and God will sustain you, just as he did here with David. Now Saul's daughter, verse 20 Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines might be uh, against him. That's an interesting use of the word phrase, snare. I suspect that Saul had some idea of the character of his daughter. I suspect he had some idea of the character of the daughter, Uh, meaning that this would be a relationship that because of her character would be a way of bringing him to his knees, weakening him, uh, and not bringing him closer to God and allowing Saul to interpose his will against him. And I would say to you that this is important for you all of us here are, are obviously, many of us have been married for many years. Some of us have been married two and three times for many years. <laughs> but the, the, the point of this lesson is this, on this regard. There is no more important issue in your life or in your children's life or in your grandchildren's life than the person that they choose as a spouse. None. None. Uh, And when you understand when the Bible speaks about being unequally yoked, it's very clearly what unequally yoked is. It means one person has a view of the spirit of God, and the other person has a view of the spirit of the world. You understand? You can't have a successful spiritual marriage in this world if your spouse does not share your spiritual ideals and goals. It's important. Now... Many, many could find someone who maybe initially, when they marry, did not share those goals, and through the grace of God, God interposes his grace and mercy, and over a long-time relationship, they eventually come and walk together in the spirit of God. But this is a big deal. This is a big deal. God wants us to walk in unity, in unity with the spouse, serving God, Uh, And you see this here, and you see it even in the way that Saul arranges this relationship, saying this will drag him down. This will drag him down. This will be a snare to him. This will make him more subject to falling before the Philistines. We're going to end the lesson here at this point and continue it next week as we continue to see David living uh, in difficult circumstances in the palace of Saul. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for this lesson I thank you as you've demonstrated to us the life of David and what it means to walk in times of criticism and how you want us to have a a continuous walk that glorifies you, Lord. Not be subject to the vicissitudes of the ups and downs of life and yet to be there constant day in and day out, walking in your grace. Lord, I ask you that these lessons grow in our heart, and resonate this week. Protect our men and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.